Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Clemens Che. Clemens is a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute, who focuses on the history and politics of the Gulf states, with a particular emphasis on Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar. At the MEI, he spearheads a public education series entitled Bridging the Gulf, and is currently working on a book project related to Kuwait's Diwaniyas. Clemens, it's really exciting to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Simon, thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to chatting with you. It's um, it's a pleasure. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Your work is fascinating, really, really interesting, and I think you're you're one of this this new generation of of golfy uh, experts who are doing really, really exciting stuff. So. I have to begin, Clemens, by asking how did how did someone from Singapore get interested in in the Gulf? Thanks for the question, Simon, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, how did I get into you know this Gulf business and, and you know this this domain of research on on the oil states? Um, well, to start off, I would have to say that. Um, my interest back then, before I did my degree, was in French, and I completed high school uh, with with uh, A levels in French, and then I went on to do a BA program at Sciences Po Paris with a focus on the Middle East, and that's how I came to uh, do my year abroad in Kuwait, and that's how I also came about to uh, learning Arabic as my fourth language, uh, in addition to uh, English, of course, Mandarin Chinese. And, and French, so it was uh, one hell of a journey. Let's just say that. And uh, when I did my master's degree in Durham and also my PhD, I went on to you know look into certain aspects of Kuwaiti society and politics more deeply, and, and that's how I began to venture a bit more into the realm of, of, of Gulf politics and history and society. And of course, my my current job involves looking at the geopolitics. The region as well. Amazing. Well, what a journey that has been. Four languages is um, inciting a lot of jealousy, I'm sure, amongst our listeners, particularly those of us who struggle with two or three on a very, very good day. Um, I've got to pick you up on that that move, Clemence. The, the the interest in French politics, sure, but then how does the interest in French politics? segue into Middle East politics? Is it just a class you took at Sciences Po or is there something in particular that, that really piqued your attention? So, I mean, you know, when, when I had to choose Sciences Po Pakli and they offered, you know, the programs that they had, uh, you either chose the, cent, you know, the central campus, the HQ, which is in Pakli, and uh, that was, you know, their main campus, or mm-hmm. you had a choice of choosing one of their regional campuses, which each focuses on a specific region of the world. So it could be Asia, it could be Europe, it could be Africa, or it could be the Middle East. And, and of course, back then, um, I didn't want to go down that conventional path, that well-trodden path that many of my peers uh, uh, had gone on. And, and so I decided, let's just choose something new and different. And uh, I chose the Middle East. And of course, I was, uh, you know, redirected to the campus in Mongtong, which is uh, Nice being the nearest city in, in that area. And um, so that's how things started. And of course, I was pretty much the minority in my cohort. Uh, the rest of them were either French or uh, people from the Maghreb or people 
from Lebanon and, and Egypt. So I was pretty much, I guess, one of the only one of the two Asians who were part of the the class uh, that graduated. And was it purely contrarian, or, or was there was there a, a some type of hook that drew you in? It, it it can't surely have just been I want to do something different to everyone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, no. At, at first, at first, I was really intrigued by um, Islam uh, mm-hmm. as, as, as a religion because in Singapore, um, you know, we have Hinduism, we have Islam, we have Buddhism, and also Christianity. And uh, coming from from a background where my own family practices Buddhism, and of course, having classmates in my high school days who who used to practice other religions, other faiths. Um, I thought that it would be it would be good to venture out a bit more and to learn about the religion. And of course, I didn't quite know back then that so you know tightly um, intertwined with uh, you know the Arab world in general, and it goes back a long way. With the, the Muslim world goes back a long way with Arab history itself. So, and of course, Albert Hurani was was that that kind of uh, bible for us in terms <laughs> of the curriculum when we first started. So I guess it was all something different and also European history in itself wasn't exactly familiar to me, you know, because we've yeah. been studying about Southeast Asian history and of course on, on the syllabus, we studied about the Cold War. So Middle East history and then European history were both really, you know, sort of novelties for, for me as, sure. as a student back Yeah. Sure. Okay, that's that's interesting. And then then you go to Durham then um, for your for your MA and your PhD. Who were you working with with your PhD? Sorry, I didn't get the last. The last uh, who part was of the who was supervising your PhD? Okay, so that was um, it was uh, Professor James Discatori who first uh, was my supervisor before he left for elsewhere, and then uh, Professor Anush. Teshami came to become uh, my primary supervisor and I had um, a change of secondary supervisors between uh, Professor David Held and then uh, Professor Stephen Lyon who is now the Dean of Faculty of Arts at uh, Aga Khan University in London. So you had some uh, some heavy hitters there then with, uh, with yes. Jim and Anoush and David Held. Yes. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. So tell us a bit about what you were doing your, your PhD research on then, because at this point you, you're becoming more and more interested in, in Kuwaiti um, society and, and social politics. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so my PhD was on the Diwaniyas in Kuwait, or more widely known in the region as uh, Majlis or Majalis, plural. Um, and in Kuwait, they're more actually known as Diwaniya or Diwawin, again, the plural term of, mm-hmm. of the word. And these councils and or sitting rooms or reception rooms, however you call it, uh, was the main focus of my research in, in the PhD at least. And I spent, you know, since uh, my year abroad during my BA days until I, the completion of my PhD, going back and forth to the country and talking to people and sitting in these uh, Diwawin and uh, also interviewing diplomats, which is another, um, you know, new aspect of the research because I found that diplomats visited the same reception rooms, and of course, for a reason. I mean, besides establishing personal connection. So, I mean, in a nutshell, you you know, these 
interlinked uh, space and tradition was the focus of my research. So for people unfamiliar with um, with the DOIN, just tell us a little bit about what they are, um, how do they differ from the Majlis? What is it about them that that makes them such a, a an important part of Kuwaiti society? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Majlis, of course, are councils where, you know, um, by tradition, it's for public consultation where the ruler or or the leadership meets the people. And uh, across the Gulf, you know, these kind of rooms or courts, you know, or councils are places and spaces where, you know, someone from the ruling family would say uh, and invite, you know, certain people or certain groups or the heads of certain tribes into this room to discuss any, you know, dispute or any concerns they may have and, um, you know, try to find a solution. So, you know, we are talking about conflict resolution, but mm-hmm. in Kuwait, you know, more than that, you know, it's the, the, the Diwaniya is more than the match list that you find uh, elsewhere in the Gulf, simply because as I as, uh, the foreign, former foreign minister, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Sabah Salim, puts, puts it, he calls the, the Diwaniya in Kuwait an open house. So, unlike the other match list that you find uh, in the Gulf, where you, you need to be invited uh, into the match list itself, you know, in Kuwait, you really can walk in simply and, and introduce yourself and sit down and you will be treated hospitably. So it's sort of an open house in that sense that you can walk in and walk out whenever they are in session. Um, and um, it, it's pretty much fluid and every family has the diwania on a specific day of the week uh, where they sit. And, and again, I have to emphasize that it's uh, traditionally a male preserve. So it's a, it's a male domain. And, and back in the day before oil was discovered, you know, when uh, pretty much uh, all of the Gulf uh, states, Emirates back then, uh, were focused on maritime trade. So the Diwanias were these rooms that used to face the shore and, and the sea. And, uh, and for a good reason, of course, so that their main stakeholders would be looking out of the windows and checking out their dows and, and ships and also be saying hi to the ship captains, what they call, call the nukhida. And um, whenever, again, dispute arises, uh, all these, uh, you know, skeleton of um, stakeholders would meet in this diwaniya. And that meet, that includes the pearl divers, that includes the, 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 the ship captain, the ship builders, and also the merchants. So, that was the purpose back in the day. And, and my research actually traced the evolution of this practice and space over time and into a more urban setting. And after oil was discovered, uh, when suburbanization takes place, you know, what becomes of the Diwani and Kuwaiti society? How has its relevance changed over time? And, 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 so, and that includes also, as I mentioned earlier, um, diplomats employing the use of this space to, to you know, tap on the capital, what I call social capital, or what Pierre Boudier came up with, you know, uh, the social capital through the networking that they that they find useful in the Diwania. So that's that's in a nutshell, you know, what my research encompasses uh, in terms of the Diwania's uh, role in Kuwaiti society. It's really fascinating. Uh, really, really interesting stuff um, conceptually in terms of the Bourdieu um, and also the spatial component but also 
kind of performatively and on the everyday sort of nature of, of political life. For, for someone who's not been, what would they expect if they, uh, or what would they, what would they experience, perhaps is a better way of putting it, when they walk through the doors of a diwania? Well, you would expect, I mean, of course, there are, you know, pretty much uh, much of the physical landscape in Kuwait and like the rest of the Gulf states are raised and, and you know, revamped and renovated. And in the process, there were some demolitions of buildings. So you would expect in the newer Diwania that it would be a very modern salon kind of setting, but there are a row of really traditional uh, Diwanias along Gulf Road where the shore used to be and now this land has been reclaimed. Mm-hmm. And you find these preserved uh, Diwanias that belong to the mer- huge merchant and prominent merchant families still there. And they normally sit on Sunday, Sunday evening. And if you enter one of them, you'll be greeted by black and white photos, uh, you know, portraits of their ancestors, family trees, uh, pictures of dolls, And of course, you'll be asked to sit and you'll be served coffee and dates. And if you're lucky, you get the local snacks uh, fresh out from the oven. Um, and also, um, you'll be asked, you know, uh, what's your name, to introduce yourself. And... Um, you know, people will talk to you and you, you'll be treated as a, as a distinguished guest. You will either be sat uh, next to the host of the Diwania, usually a very senior family member or, you know, not far off from him. And there's, uh, there's this etiquette or I would say a little hierarchy in how people sit in the Diwania because the closer you are to the host in the room, it means that you're treated re- you know, really respectably and treated, you know, really hospitably. And usually the younger family members will be set nearer to the entrance slash exit of, of the Diwania. So that's what you normally be expecting when you enter a Diwania. And uh, they talk about a range of uh, issues, uh, including um, history stuff, including, um, you know, what is the political affairs of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whenever, uh, whenever you know, it is, it is pretty much time to leave. Uh, everyone will stand up, or uh, but there is no fixed time to, to leave in in that sense. And, but but when it's time to leave, and usually it's time for the last prayer of of the day, people would leave. Some of them, of course, extend late into the night. But also, I would say that you you may get lucky in that sense because I say that it's an open house. And you may see one of the sheikhs from the Al Sabah family coming to visit, um, uh-huh. and doing their rounds uh, along along Gulf Road and hopping what I call diwania hopping <laughs> uh, from one year to another along what used to be, you know, an important uh, shoreline for Kuwait. Sure, and, and how does it differ if a member of the Al Sabah comes to visit? Well, there's no that that that's the I guess the special moment. Um, you know, when when you're visiting a Diwani, of course, the Al Sabah uh, family member will be treated with really well by the host, and yeah. if you ask the Sydney host. But otherwise, you know, anything, anything that you want to raise during that discussion uh, can be raised. You know, there's no limits. Of course, we are not talking about uh, any insults, but we're talking about a very frank and, and free discussion, and and that's what uh, the Kuwaitis do pride themselves. 
uh, you know, on whether it's the National Assembly or whether it's this kind of discussion uh, on the ground. And, and probably I, I can, you know, suddenly it hits me that Jürgen Habermas actually wrote something about the Salon and, and I talked about it really uh, in, in my introductory chapter of, of my uh, thesis that, mm-hmm. you know, it's the true vehicle of public opinion that puts, yeah. I guess, leadership in touch with the needs of society. And that used to be the case when Kuwait was heavily involved in the maritime trade. But now, even in this really urbanized context and landscape, you know, members of the ruling Al-Sabah family still visit this Diwaniya, still get in, they still get in touch with society and, and try to know what uh, what's happening on the ground, public sentiment, and know what's being discussed really, you know, uh, among uh, the average citizens. Yeah. You've got, You've got a body of work that really looks at these um, these ideas in detail. Um, I'd point people in particular to your piece, excuse me, in the Journal of Arabian Studies. And yes. um, the, the, the piece is titled The Diwaniya Tradition in Modern Kuwait, an Interlinked Space and Practice. And I think I really like the piece in that it it, it does what you've just been talking about, but it, it sort of conceptualizes that fusion of place, space and tradition, the sort of the performative tradition of local custom playing out in the context of those those spaces. It's a really, really interesting piece. So I'd, I'd urge people to, um, to, to dig it out and, and have a read. But you've also explored it in, um, in, in other contexts, uh, in other pieces. So can I ask you just briefly, before we move on to broader discussion of, of Kuwaiti politics, which I'm really, really keen to get your thoughts on, What's the uh, what's the book project and when can we expect it? So no pressure, project, I should say. <laughs> no worries, Simon. Uh, the book project is expected for next year. Um, I'm still in the midst of uh, editing it. Of course, trying to tone down on on a lot of uh, theory because that's what you know we all we all expect when we are editing a book, especially when it's fresh out of a, a PhD dissertation. Um, so that's really pretty much, um, you know, what needs to be done. And of course, I've been updating a lot of the things that happened during COVID, you know, were Diwania still functioning, you know, because, you know, of the restrictions yeah. or if they functioning, um, you know, what, what were the alternatives? And also, you know, have they been uh, revitalized now that restrictions are eased? And of course, we, we saw um, an earlier parliamentary elections. So by default, you know, Diwaniyas were uh, used for public campaigning, you know, before elections. And so what were, what were the methods used by candidates during this time? So I, I, I actually tried to insert all these updates, of course, uh, in bits and pieces uh, along the manuscript. And, and what you can expect also is a, a huge chapter on diplomacy. And because I thought that that was something that could be of, of, of value. And I added that into the book uh, while I was, of course, doing the research and field research. And, of course, this includes interviews with various diplomats, including those from the British Embassy and the U.S. Embassies. Uh, some of them uh, who, have now, who are now out of service and who have also kindly you know, accepted these interview requests. And so it gets a sense of how the diplomats found it useful to tap on the social capital that they accumulated or accrued um, during their time in Kuwait. 
Yeah. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's, while many people say that, you know, the benefits do not come immediately, you know, we are talking about the personal connection, how really, I think, how the Gulf Arab, Gulf Arab work and, uh, you know, operate. You know, you don't simply discuss something transactional on your first visit. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it takes time to, to, to build these relationships and, of course, you know, a sense of trust between people. And I think that face-to-face uh, element in Diwaniyas is something that can't be replaced elsewhere. Sure. And that is why when we talk about um, virtual meetings and we talk about, um, you know, virtual campaigning, you know, they, they don't seem to have the same kind of impact that face-to-face, um, you know, events and occasions have. And that is also why, you know, um, weddings and funerals are also held in the Diwaniyas really... Uh, you know, really important kinship-related kind of events are, are held in the Diwaniyas, and precisely because that those are the time where you either mourn or you celebrate, but also the time for networking. And, and people have mentioned this as well, you know, time and again, that these uh, family-oriented o- occasions help to help people to um, you know connect. And 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 interestingly, as a point of note. Uh, now that I recall it, all the diplomats mentioned that Ramadan. Ramadan is the time when Kuwait goes crazy in these diwaniyas, where every diwaniya will be open uh, for reception every evening, mm-hmm. and people go and try to do you know, many diwaniyas, and as they do many diwaniyas, visit many diwaniyas uh, per night, and the ambassadors will send a team of, of diplomats and mobilize this team <laughs> to visit as many as possible in different districts. And uh, if you, of course, have a huge manpower in your embassy, then you are able to cover more. But if you don't, then you are limited to just the ambassador and his deputy or her deputy visiting this this Iwaniyas during Ramadan. And if you are a new ambassador, it makes it even more imperative for you to visit the Iwaniyas because it's important for you to introduce yourself, to give out your name card, you know, to, to sort of put one foot through the door before you actually talk about anything else at a later stage. So I think this is all very interesting to me when I started interviewing the diplomats. And I thought it's another dimension to this uh, discussion on on the Diwaniya. So I added it into the whole dissertation and now what will be the manuscript that that comes. Amazing. Well, as someone who who likes a bit of theory and is certainly a fan of, of the work of Pierre Bourdieu, please don't cut too much of that out because I can see how that would be really, really valuable in understanding both the um, the, the, the importance of particular diwaniya um, over others, but also revealing the strength of particular um, maybe embassies rather than others. Could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yep. who is it? who's the book coming out with, Clemence, so people can watch out for it? So it will likely be next summer. Okay. Uh, as we all Inshallah, you know, uh, but, but next summer, next Perfect. summer, I guess it's a tendency, yeah, until a, a fixed, uh, fixed date is given. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, um, do we have a title? Yes. It's, uh, from council to culture, the Amazing. Diwania in urban Kuwait. What a great yep. title. So that's going to be uh, really, really valuable reading for anyone interested in Kuwaiti politics, which is a, a, a not so smooth segue into the other thing that I wanted to um, to discuss with you today, which is to get your take on on what is happening right now in Kuwait. 
Um, it seems to be in a bit of a, a political flux, an interesting political moment. So uh, before getting your your analysis, can you just give people a, a, a quick snapshot of, of what's going on in Kuwaiti politics right now, please? Yes, sure. Um, so I think to sum it up, there's a lot of uh, personality politics. There's a lot of personal grudges involved. And basically, in a nutshell, the legislative branch, the parliament, or the National Assembly, uh, you know, is at loggerheads with the cabinet of ministers, the executive branch. So uh, they have been pretty much at deadlock since uh, the emir, this emir succeeded the throne. And uh, it's not no, it's not do it's not doing Kuwait any favors at the minute because you know when certain important bills have to be passed, you know they are usually blocked, or when certain uh, legislations need to be enacted, that's also a result that has also resulted in a deadlock. So you know it's 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 not good at the minute, and and what we are seeing right now at this present moment uh, well a new prime minister has been appointed by a miri decree just yes just last night and um uh that's what people have been watching out for uh, but at the same time because uh the, the leadership has taken a while to replace or appoint a new uh, prime minister that the last few months that we've seen has been in limbo kuwaiti politics has been limbo because precisely because only a stand-in government has been operating. And so the decision, any political decisions can't be exactly made or signed off by the stand-in government because they have already resigned but re- remain there until you know a, a new cabinet is being formed. So that's the situation that's been going on uh, right now. Sure. So it's a, a real um, moment of flux and possibility and comes at a time as well where where regional politics is in a state of, of limbo with regard to um, Saudi talks with Iran, ongoing fighting in Yemen, um, debate over the JCPOA, and, and Kuwait is positioned kind of in the middle of all of this in, in some ways. So just tell us a little bit about Kuwait's role on the, on the Gulf stage, if you will, please, because I think this is often misunderstood how important Kuwait is in regional politics. Sure, Simon. Um, so Kuwait has always been adopting a really balanced uh, foreign policy. I mean, when we talk about the Gulf, in fact, the late uh, Sheikh Sabah, the Emir, late Emir Sheikh Sabah, our Ahmed, he was actually conducting a lot of uh, shuttle diplomacy during the Gulf crisis, which has now been resolved. But back then, during the blockade against Qatar, uh, the late Emir was, you know, was really personally endeavoured to resolve this crisis and he went back and forth passing messages to the conflicting parties. And, and, and I think Kuwait foreign policy has been there uh, as, as a mediator, as one that gets himself, get itself in, in, in the thick of conflict resolution since its independence and since at that time uh, the late Emir was the foreign minister uh, back in the day. So he was pretty much the architect of Kuwait's foreign policy, Kuwait's balanced foreign policy, which has remained and, and we are seeing continuity as far as possible by the, by the current emir and his crown prince. But what we are also seeing, you know, and there's also, there are also questions being raised is because 
the, the current emir and his crown prince both come from a, a heavily uh, you know, defense-related background or mm-hmm. interior-related background. So also questions about their ability to, to, to manage foreign policy as well as the late emir Sheikh Sabah did. So um, in terms of governance as well, you know, um, there's also discussion among you know politicians and people, prominent people in government about the style of governance by the current leadership. You know, is are are they more aggressive? Uh, are they less uh, you know less open to criticism? Um, and and of course, there was a televised speech by the crown prince who has pretty much taken off taken on uh, most of the emiri duties right now. Um, and and you know. He emphasized really strongly that the government or the executive branch, referring to the cabinet of ministers, the government is responsible for the situation in the country. And he, he was pretty, uh, you know, he was really strong worded. And, and, and the blame, you know, that he placed on was indirectly, you know, directed at, uh, at the MP, you know, at, at, the, at the National Assembly. And, and I think his final words during that last televised speech did not, you know, does not bode well for, for what comes if, if there still remains resistance because he said if the situation continues, uh, we may take steps that you may not like. So I think, you know, um, people are waiting to see if there's any uh, heavy-handed, you know, methods being employed by, by the top leadership. Um, what does that mean, Clements? So seeing- Sorry to interrupt. What does Sorry. it mean, steps that you may not like? Yeah. Exactly. So you may not like is something like I think it probably harks back to um, 1986 and 1976, where the parliament was dissolved right, unconstitutionally. Okay. And 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 I think um, back in the back in those days, uh, when when parliament was dissolved unconstitutionally, you know, there uh, there was also a limit placed on um, freedom and, and you know like freedom of speech and things like this, and also um, appointing uh, a council that is more uh, pro-government and pro-leadership uh, that, of course, you know, takes away a lot of, or, or undoes a lot of what Kuwait has been all about. Um, and so I think that these steps are, could be a, a, a warning sign to people who are uh, dissenting, you know, in the country, or it could be asking and, and pressurizing the opposition into cooperating. But the Emir has been calling for cooperation between the two branches since he came into power, and that's nothing new. Right. Um, but there's a sense of frustration at this at this moment uh, in terms of uh, finding a, a you know a, a sustainable solution to this no end uh, uh, political crisis. And what does the opposition? Oh, how does the opposition view all of this? What's their their stance on the new emir and and his his approach to to politics? So, uh, the I think it all boils down. They may have many different grievances mm-hmm. because uh, some of the composition of the parliament, you know, is as is is such that you know there are people who have different interests, either tribal interests. Or you know a more sectarian interest, or or their mercantile interest, or representing people who are trying to um, you know be elevated into the middle class status. So there are people with different interests. But 
to sum it up, there's there's a lot of uh, grievances directed at two personalities uh, in, in you know in, in in politics. The first the first of them is uh, is the Speaker of Parliament Marzouk Al Ghanim, who, who has been really close to the leadership and he has he has been Speaker for a number of years already, and to the point that people want him replaced. And the second um, grudge is against the former Prime Minister, um, uh, Sheikh Sabah Khalid. Um, so now there is a reappointment. I mean, sorry, there's a new appointment in, in that. You know, now the Emir's son is is appointed as, as the new Prime Minister. So that part of the equation has been kind of solved. It remains to be seen. Um, but the other part of the equation, which the Speaker is still there, still lingering in, and I think um, this is the issue because um, it's like I said at the start, you know, it, it, all, it has all been about personal grudges. They simply want these two figures removed. But the question is, will the opposition be contented if, mm-hmm. if and when, you know, these two are removed? Because uh, would they still be filing for grilling or, or you know, ministerial uh, votes of no confidence uh, against the anyone who is newly appointed because that has been the case and, and that that is actually very highly disruptive because you know any MP can file for an interrogation against the minister and that takes time uh, and and also you know it, it, it detracts from it distracts the, the cabinet from doing what it needs to be done yeah yeah of course so just linking this back to uh, to your work on the Diwarin how does this this political deadlock, this political crisis, get discussed uh, in a diwania? Is it is it free form discussion? Are there quote unquote red lines around what can be said? What's what's the nature of political debate at present? So the nature of political debate in in the diwawin really um, is, I mean, anything goes except don't. In- out, you know, except you said the fact that you can't insult the the ruling Sabah family, sure. but constructive feedback and criticizing government policies—that's all all right. Um, I don't think there's a, a strict red line uh, when it comes to these uh, discussion. Uh, and and of course, people have something to say. And when any ruling family member comes in and visits the Diwania, they would say it, uh, probably couch in a more polite manner of course, of but, course. but they would uh, they have the freedom to, to open their mouth to express themselves and, and one interesting um, experience that I've had when I visited uh, one of the districts that, that are on the outskirts of Kuwait City further out much pretty much far out and also nearer to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was when I visited this family uh, and uh, they had Saudi relatives over and, you know, when I ask, you know, how, how is your match list in the kingdom different from the Diwaniya uh, in Kuwait? And, and, and one word kept recurring in its responses, and, and that was Korea or freedom. And, and I think that, that really makes an important point um, that, you know, in Kuwait, and, and I say this relative to the other Gulf states, there, there is a kind of liberty, well, at least to the degree where people can um, give feedback on government policies and even in the presence of uh, people in government. And, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no thing as, you know, you're going to be detained just because you have a comment on this specific policy. Sure. Um, I mean, in politics, 
at, at the very top level in, in, in parliament, people are already criticizing and, you know, um, you know, criticizing government policy, criticizing specific uh, ministers. So who are they to say that the people on the ground can't do the same? You know, you get what I mean. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think that's interesting that, that the country uh, has, I guess, the kind of political vibrancy. Amazing. Clements, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really, really fascinating hearing about Kuwaiti politics and about the the Diwawin and your own work. It's been a, a real, real pleasure. So a huge thank you for joining us today. Pleasure is all mine, Simon. And again, thank you for the invitation. Hope we keep in touch after this. Huge thanks to Clemens for his time just now. It's a pleasure really talking with him and hearing all about his, his wonderful work on Kuwait and the Diwawin. You can find him on Twitter at SinGulfura. That's at SinGulfura. Do give him a follow. He's an excellent resource for all things Kuwait and, of course, the Diwawin. As always... Thank you for listening. Please do like, comment, share, subscribe, etc., etc. Until next time.